This is the Embark Pod, a series by Embark Group, bringing together industry leaders and commentators to discuss and debate the future of the industry. Today, we're very pleased to say we've got Jamie Druitt, who's Group Head of Distribution at Embark Group, and also Keith Richards, Chairman of the Financial Vulnerability Task Force. That's a, an independent body set up by the sector to help the industry uh, with customers when they have vulnerable circumstances. We're going to talk, in fact, about vulnerable customers today. Welcome, both of you. Uh, I mean, first of all, then, let me come to you, Keith, and just explain about the Financial Vulnerability Task Force. I tried to sort of give an outline of it there, but just give us a sense of what it is and why it's needed. Yeah, thanks very much for the opportunity. It's um, We actually set it up um, when I was Chief Executive of the Personal Finance Society in recognition of another task force we'd set up um, called the Pensions Advice Task Force, which created the gold standard, which was widely adopted by probably about two-thirds of uh, the financial advice firms offering advice. Um, sadly, we were a little bit too late there to drive the right set of outcomes, uh, given that British Steel had already happened. So I was approached by a number of um, key financial planners across the market, uh, wanting really for, for a body to be set up that could provide not just um, guidance to the sector based around good practice sharing, but also become a voice uh, and a lobbyist with government and policymakers. Uh, so we set up the Financial Vulnerability Task Force deliberately as an independent body. It's a community interest company. Uh, all of the directors of the board, which are quite varied, do it on a pro bono basis. Um, we do have alignment with other bodies, in particular all of the professional bodies. So a really key part of the FBT being uh, independent is to ensure that we can engage across the entire market irrespective. And in fact, we've even had larger firms and insurance companies also wanting to adopt uh, a charter that was created. And that's a really important part of what we did. The, this isn't about the Financial Vulnerability Task Force. In fact, we created the charter so that firms can adopt an identifiable logo uh, that they can put on their websites. And, and the reason for doing that it has nine underlying principles that firms can adopt. Now, in my experience, the vast majority of professional firms across the market already do uh, a lot in alignment and compliance with the FCA, but they're not always sure that they do. And what we want to do is provide that vehicle that provides the confidence uh, in the market um, in sharing good practice, but also being able to benchmark against good practice standards, which are in alignment with FCA requirements. So our charter allows firms to talk about, uh, and it's already happened, where some have adopted the charter for their website and the, and the client or the customer has asked what it's about, or the firm or the individual's who adopt the charter can actually talk about the charter and what they do to address the vulnerable circumstances in life, the processes they use, etc. So we well, really at this point bring in, if I may, just just to interrupt you for a moment, bring in Jamie because it, it's useful to say, well, uh, as group head of distribution, Embark, yeah, Jamie, how do you interact with this? How how does this how how does the task force impact what you do? How does the charter impact what Embark does? Yeah, hi Roger. Thanks very much. And uh, well, I think I think it should be a, day, a part of everyday life. To be honest with you, Roger. I mean, as, as Keith's alluded to, it gives you know identifiable logos. So I think kite marks have obviously been about for for a long period. And I think if people can identify with a a logo, a kite mark, and a brand that takes these things very seriously, then I think the affinity they will have 
uh, with that advisor in the advisory firm is important. You've only got to go back to when advisors were starting to become chartered financial planners and the new benchmark that everybody wanted to get to. And I think, you know, this should be no different. You know, we, we, we're always going to come across vulnerable customers on a daily basis. And I think how can advisors do that? Well, it goes back to to the basics a little bit, doesn't it, about knowing your customer. How much do we uh, do we all remind ourselves about that? And the more you can do that around this particular area, um, the better. And so, you know, I think it's important for firms like Embark uh, as part of Scottish Widows to also engage with the charter and do what we can as an organization. I mean, one of one of the things that we've we've already done, uh, Roger, is make sure that we've got 25 customer champions across the organization so that we're helping on the front line um, with all of our, our customers to identify where we can. I think then our engagement with the task force and advisors who carry the charter is just going to be absolutely vital. Well, let's let's now go into what we really mean by this. We mentioned the term vulnerable customers as if I suppose everybody knows who who are vulnerable and what those vulnerabilities are. But uh, let's let's try and explain in in layman's terms, what are the kind of people who you would regard as vulnerable customers? Yes, it's really interesting because unfortunately, giving it a tag of vulnerable customer has given a degree of of narrowing it down to people believing it's just about consumers who've got identifiable um, uh, impairments such as uh, age-related cognitive impairments or disabilities. But technically, everyone who deals with uh, a financial advisor or a professional firm is vulnerable for no other reason than actually you know more than they do. Uh, so within the FCA's uh, expectations, it's not just about vulnerability. This is an extension on from know your customer, treating customers fairly. And actually, in many ways, every firm does it unconsciously as well as consciously. When regulation comes along, it, it seems to overcomplicate. Uh, and very often what we need to do is help firms understand that they're probably already meeting many of the expectations and requirements of the regulator. They just don't realize. So vulnerable customer has created an increased level of awareness, but what it has also done is created a, a level of confusion that it just narrowly puts people in bands of vulnerability, whereas technically what the regulator wants us to do is make sure that we understand that every client's an individual and that we address the, the vulnerable circumstances in life that they face. So for us, it's more about vulnerable circumstances rather than vulnerable people. Okay, well, give me give me a concrete example then on that case. So, so I mean, how who somebody I might not immediately as an advisor think was vulnerable, but actually I should be taking into account their vulnerabilities. Just just give us a concrete example. Okay, so let's let's take perfectly healthy, uh, progressive young couple that are about to embark on on buying their first property. They will not fully understand. They won't be aware of of uh, planning for the future. Actually, what is incumbent upon a, a professional advisor would be to make a note of all their information, principles of know your customer, and actually take into account uh, unforeseen uh, changes, life changes that will occur during any period of the advice given. So, for example, if someone's going into a 25-year term, they're, they're just entering that early stage, and a financial advisor has to think about uh, probe about their future plans. Otherwise, it could seriously impact their ability to afford any solution that's affordable today, but may not be sustainable in three years time due to a planned 
life change. So people, advisors would should do that naturally, uh, but that's where the sector has, has been caught in the past by failing the regulatory expectations to know your customer and give appropriate advice. So here, there's an example. It's nothing to do with someone with a an age-related impairment or, or a disability uh, at the time, which actually might need a different level of treatment. For example, if you're spotting the early signs of, uh, of dementia, uh, especially as we're dealing with a much older client demographic these days, there are different dynamics that we're helping advisors to recognize in dealing and providing an ongoing service. But it's, it's actually people like the one I've just described, a young couple starting for the first time, they do face off to vulnerable circumstances, which actually if properly dealt with, financial advisors play a key role in mitigating the risk of those vulnerable circumstances, not necessarily now at the point of advice, but actually during that period that the advice uh, is live. Does that, does that help, Tom? I mean, it, it helps to understand these, these kind of things. And I suppose, let's look, turn it around, look at it, I suppose, from the advisor point of view. So, um, let me bring Jamie. Let me bring you in and say there are these five myths I think that we 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 heard about about vulnerable customers that that they talk about. Customers are the only ones at risk of being vulnerable. It works. It's more work for me as an advisor dealing with vulnerable customers. Vulnerable customers not my responsibility as an advisor. Vulnerable customers cost more to an advisor business. And and perhaps uh, exploding that one just now is Keith. Of course, only older people are vulnerable. But from an advisor point of view. I guess vulnerable people perhaps could be seen as a problem uh, up to a point, Jimmy. Um, yeah, yes, I mean, uh, yes and no, because I think if you if you come back to Keith's point around advisors doing this consciously and unconsciously, I think the majority of the advisor population will be doing this as a matter of course. And it's how do you actually then prove that to the regulator and you know all, all of the professional bodies that you are actually you know helping and supporting vulnerable customers i think key's point around circumstances is quite an interesting one because i was just looking at the definition of our of, of what we say as a vulnerable customer it's someone who due to their personal circumstances so links directly in with what keith is saying is especially susceptible to harm particularly when a firm is not acting with appropriate level of care. And I think that's the important piece because advisors in the natural course of day are dealing with their customers in a caring type of way. You know, they're trying to help them. They're trying to support them. So nine times out of 10, they will be, as Keith says, mitigating circumstances and helping them through this journey. I think we should also just not forget about that spectrum of vulnerability. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the verge of harming yourself, that you are vulnerable. There are many different stages of it and interactions either with advisors or with, you know, frontline people can actually move people in, in along that spectrum, actually helping them become less vulnerable or actually moving them to become more vulnerable. So I think it's important to understand that 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 spectrum of it and also in terms of uh, what the definition as Keith alluded to. But back to back to your point on those myths. I mean, look, advisors can be vulnerable in themselves. So I think we have a duty and a responsibility, not only to, to look at this around customers, but around advisors as well. And I think one of your myths that you referred to was is, you know, as an advisor, it's gonna cost me more money. Well, I agree with that statement. It is gonna cost you more money if you don't actually adopt the right processes in dealing with vulnerable customers. You know, this isn't going to cost you more money now, but if you don't adapt 
uh, and deal with this in the right way. And then it's certainly going to cost you money in the long run for sure. So, you know, but that's, let's come back to the point. I think the majority of advisors are doing this day in, day out. It's just actually formally documenting it and having the process in place and empowering the right people to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. But Jamie, let me come back to you and say, in a, in a real world, though, in, in, in the practical day-to-day experience of advisors, you wouldn't blame perhaps an advisor, perhaps it's only human. You see someone coming through the door, metaphorically at least, and you think they have got vulnerabilities. This is going to be more work. This is not going to be prof- as profitable for my business. And you couldn't blame people, perhaps, for thinking that. Um, I don't think you can blame them, but I, I, I think I'd go back to the advisors in this day and age. I think the majority of them actually take the approach and want to help and care for their clients. Um, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't go on, Roger, and it, we need to make sure that across the task force and us as providers, we need to make sure we help advisors uh, with their customers in making sure they identify these things. But if you don't do the work up front, in my view, you don't get these processes in place, then it's going to cost your business in the long run. So this is the time to, to to get it right, in my view. Keith, let me come back to you on this. What sort of proportion of customers are we talking about in all this? Because I mean, there's some very interesting stats out there. Mental health, one in four adults in Britain experience at least one mental disorder during their lives. Um, long-term illness, 50% of the UK population expect to be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lives. Caring responsibilities, 6.5 million people in the UK have significant caring responsibilities and poor literacy or numeracy skills. Under half of UK adults have a numeracy age of 11 or below. I mean, this is a bigger problem, perhaps, than people uh, understand. Yeah, it, it, it is, uh, Roger. But I think, I think we've got to put it into perspective that um, everyone, Will will face a vulnerable circumstance at some point. They're called life life changes, triggers. Some, some are planned and and others aren't. It's very different from uh, not confusing someone who approaches an advisor today that's got an identifiable disability and therefore could put them into a vulnerable customer category. Uh, and I agree with Jamie. I, my experience is very, very few advisors would ever turn that client away, even if they didn't necessarily feel fall into the client profile that they're normally looking for or, or, or marketing to. Um, but, but I think when you look at FCA's uh, statistics on uh, the Financial Lives Survey, they found that this was in 2017, and arguably it's got worse since uh, the pandemic, that over half of UK adults, 25.6 million, display one or more characteristics of being potentially vulnerable. So, uh, and that's led to their financial guidance that came out, FG21-1, um, is a really good summary. Every advisor should should actually just take the time. I agree with Jamie, if you invest the time, uh, I've got to say my experience of running a major IFA business in the past, when we did things like treating customers fairly, most advisors resented it at the time on the basis of it was another regulatory rule that was just cost. And basically if they didn't treat their customers fairly, they wouldn't have had any customers. As soon as we started to implement the physical templates to check what we actually did and how we tested against whether we were treating our customers fairly, it led to significant business opportunity. So the the irony is when you become more aware of what you're doing, the good things you do more of. The things that aren't so good or 
beneficial to clients or customers, you do less of. So in, in a perverse way, sometimes getting these sort of increased periods of focus can lead to much healthier business opportunity within the organizations themselves. They feel a lot more co confident about com you know, being able to comply with regulatory expectations, but they often find that some of their processes are a bit out of date and actually by tweaking them, it often leads to not only happier clients, but actually more clients and better business opportunity. So I think you've got to look at it with a healthy mind. It's the, when you don't understand that regulation is really doing what you're probably adopting anyway. The old principle when I cut my teeth in, uh, in financial advice years ago was, it was very simple. You, you'll never know whether you know everything to give the best advice, but actually always treat it as if you're giving advice to a member of your loved family. Uh, so treat every customer as if they're a member of your love family. And if then it's not the advice that you'd give a member of your love family, don't give it. It used to be called the family test. And what that really did, Roger, is sometimes we won't all know, we won't always know the, the right answers every time, but actually recognizing that allows you to come back to the office, share your uh, a, a challenge with your peers, uh, and actually maybe even refer to an expert to ensure that you're always delivering the best outcome and the best advice to your, your clients. So again, that's sort of where vulnerability comes in. We're, we're, we've stigmatized it as all, almost as if it's just limited to people with an identifiable disability. But just from the FCA's financial lives survey, over 50%, and that's with a, a potentially recognizable one. Uh, one year after you've given someone advice that doesn't appear to have any vulnerabilities could actually have a life-changing trigger, divorce, bereavement, uh, health. So they're the kind of things that advisors and firms need to consider for the long term. Not You can't always do it from the outset, but it's how you respond when that life change occurs and how you deal with the customer accordingly. But I suppose people listening to this might say, well, that, that sounds like a very a very good way to deal with the situation and and the ideal way in a way but but Jamie let me come to you in, in, in the sort of again in the real world of adv advisors people might also think not only are vulnerable customers potentially trouble or, or not particularly advantageous to the uh, the advisor but there's a there's a reflection a mirror image of that which is to say sometimes vulnerable people potentially could be exploited because of their vulnerabilities uh, to produce more um, income or business for uh, the advisory business. And that that's a risk too, which which needs to be borne in mind, a risk of exploitation apart from anything else. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think that's why it's really important for all of the staff across a business uh, to be trained uh, and given knowledge around vulnerable customers. Um, you know, and, and, and anybody who sees that particular type of behavior, you know, should be whistleblowing. In this day and age, I don't think we can, in, in terms of our profession and, and, and the way we conduct ourselves, allow anybody to be exploiting any customers, let alone vulnerable customers, Roger. So, you know, we certainly need to be very vigilant uh, around all of this. And I think that comes down to to all of the training. You know, we've just in, in, in terms of our ourselves who embark and we can share this with with some of the advisors gone through 
a really, really rigorous um, training program in terms of vulnerable customers. And everybody's done an assessment to make sure that you've got a full understanding of that. And I think you can bring that out into advisors' businesses as well. You know, this is a really important um, you know, subject and it just doesn't stop. It always continues, as, as, as Keith's alluded to. You know, we've gone through this with Know Your Customer. We've gone through this with treating customers fairly. Um, this is just another extension uh, of it. And I think it's, it's it's really, really important to make sure that everybody is well versed in it. Keith, I mean, we've been talking about best practice, essentially, in, in what should be going on. But some people will say, well, we've got the regulation, we've got the charter now, we've got all the commitments by big companies like, like Embark to, to, to fulfil this. But is there more work to do? I mean, do you still see instances of bad practice? No, it's not so much about, um, well, actually, we call it good practice rather than best practice, Roger, because there's more, more than one way to do something. And because of the individual needs of clients, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. So it might sound like semantics, but best practice is when you want everyone to do it a single way. Uh, good practice is actually may or may not apply. And what, what we found, even working with the regulator, the regulator often finds it difficult to share good practice on the basis that people might misinterpret that the regulator is telling you how to do it. And that's certainly not what they want to do because they realise that there is no one size fits all. So it does need organisations like ourselves and Embark to, to be able to put good practice out into the market uh, so that people can actually benchmark. And we're all more interested to understand how do you do it? How do you deal with this situation? We've got a, a range of good practice guides available on our website. We've done an all-party parliamentary group joint report into theft and fraud within families. Um, and one of the interesting parts for me within my period as CEO of the personal finance society, I was dealing with the regulator and government uh, pretty much weekly. Uh, and in one conversation, we were talking about the cultural behaviours of the market and in particular conflicts of interest. What is really interesting is when I challenged or really pushed a very senior uh, regulator on what percentage of the market they felt got up in the morning intent on doing the right thing. Um, to my pleasant surprise, the response was all oh, over 98 plus percent. And, the, and because they could see my pleasant surprise at that response, um, they looked at me in all seriousness and said, no, 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 in all seriousness, we do not find lots of evidence of advisors deliberately doing the wrong thing. We just find plenty of the wrong thing being done. And that comes into the point that I think you covered off with Jamie about conflicts of interest. You can't avoid conflicts of interest. You can't avoid your, your, you know, your, your, your focus on trying to drive business opportunity. It's being conscious of the fact of whether it's conflicting against the best interests of the client. So even things like con uh, conflicts of interest is something that we have to help people become more conscious of rather than completely avoid. Uh, and that's the difference. So the more we're prepared to share good practice allows firms to more simply understand whether or not they're complying, whether they need to do more. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I think for me, you know, in my career, when people really do embrace it, they actually usually find it leads to increased business opportunity rather than cost. Jamie, let me bring you back in finally and talk about what Embark does and what Embark needs to do more. I mean, are you happy with where it is in terms of dealing with vulnerable customers or, or do you think there is room for improvement? 
I think there's always room to improve. I think we've always we've been on a journey, Roger. Um, as I say, I think you know, we certainly take this very seriously. Um, I've alluded to us having 25 customer champions across the board, but we need more of those. Um, we make sure that people are fit and proper uh, on the front line to identify any vulnerable customers or even vulnerable advisors who are talking to us who say it's not just customers who are vulnerable. There'll be members of staff who will be feeling like this and going through life events or resilience challenges, um, which we've alluded to as well. So, no, I think we take it very seriously in Bark. We're doing what we can. We're on a journey. There's always room for improvements. I think I just look at some of the things we're doing on our Embark for Advisors pages and the Advisor Gateway, which is there to help advisors and also help some of our customers as well. So as part of Lloyd's Banking Group now, um, we've also got a digital helpline where if individuals find it very hard engaging with the internet and being digital, then there's there's help and support for them. Uh, which is free of charge and advisors can introduce them to. And I think in going back to, to Keith's point, the more and more we can do um, together, you know, the better outcomes, which is what we all want, really. We want fair outcomes for customers. Um, you know, the, the more we can do with each other, the better outcomes we will get. And I think, as Keith says, it will lead to better business opportunities. We shouldn't forget the amount of wealth that is going to be transferred across the beneficiaries you know and if we're seen to be helping uh, customers through their life journeys then that's only going to resonate with with all of those beneficiaries coming through as well so i think there is great practice to be had and great business opportunities to come off the back of it as well fair outcomes and good business combined i suppose that's what we're yep. all after in the end uh, well that is it then from this episode of the embark pod my thanks to jamie Druitt, group head of distribution at embark group and also to keith richards chairman of the financial vulnerability task force for a fascinating discussion and insight really into the issue of vulnerable customers and what it means i'll be back with more episodes of the podcast i'm roger hearing for now from me thanks for listening and goodbye Thank you.